Welcome back to Sustainable Society Cafe, where we explore the most exciting emerging technologies and how they fit into the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. I'm your host, Tanner Glenn, and we are so excited that you're joining us today. We are talking about one of my favorite, actually my favorite hobby, traveling, and what that will look like in 2030. And to help us explore the future today, we are bringing back our dear friend from the podcast last week, Felix Dodds. He is an adjunct professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he has also written and edited over 20 books, 20 books. And he has played a major role in advancing sustainable development and stakeholder involvement in sustainable development at the United Nations. So we are so excited to have you back. Felix, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And maybe I could add to that that I've also done a comic and it's very relevant to the time we are in the run up to Christmas, uh, which people may want to download. It's called Santa's Green Christmas. Uh, how Father Christmas found out about climate change. So something which uh, I'm sure if you've got children or grandchildren, uh, they might enjoy reading. I think Father Christmas and Santa Claus, I think he counts as a superhero. So, you know, maybe uh, someone from Marvel is listening to this podcast and might want to make it, uh, you know, a movie or and part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> <laughs> so traveling, we're talking about traveling today. Uh I expect you're a fan of travel. Too much. I've done so much over the years. But I think that it it was Mark Twain, I think, who said something like, uh, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry and narrow-mindedness. And I think that's one of the great things about finding out about different cultures and uh, different uh, foods in different places. And so I've been a huge fan over over my whole life. I hitched to Greece when I was 16. I traveled overland to Thailand when I was 18. And I took a year off for my honeymoon and traveled down the Nile when I got married. So I'm, I'm definitely addicted to it. Oh, well, I can definitely relate to that. Like I said earlier today, travel is my favorite hobby. And I just find that I learn so much every time I, I go somewhere. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's a feeling I can't really even put into words when you know, I go somewhere new and it's just completely unexpected in terms of what I'll find. And I I love that about travel. So we'll talk today about travel at a few different levels. And your book, Tomorrow's People and New Technologies, mentions that the U.S. has been behind other developed countries in upgrading our rail system. We've seen a lot of excitement around the map of what might be a a national high-speed rail system and what that would look like in the United States. Do you think we're going to have high-speed rail? I know we have this infrastructure package working its way through Congress right now, and President Biden really wants to center climate in infrastructure, and we expect that trains might be a part of that. Do you think this will happen? I I think there's a couple of things. I mean, clearly, at the Biden Climate Summit uh, that was held in April, the U.S. made a commitment of, I think, cutting carbon dioxide by something like 52%. And so they're going to have to do it through a multitude of different ways. And doing something around air travel and doing something around electrifying the uh, the car and bus and uh, train processes is, is, I think, part of the answer. I mean, it's ridiculous. You have the United States average speed for the Amtrak is 68 miles per hour. But if you go to China, it's 268 miles an hour. So I think that um, moving towards super trains in the United States will help the United States become a 21st century 
country as far as infrastructure is concerned instead of a early 20th century country. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, you know, I think a lot of how we get around in the United States right now is either by car or by plane. I mean, even just traveling within the city, you know, I, I've lived in Los Angeles. And when you look at cities like Los Angeles that were built in the 20th century, built during the dawn of the interstate highway system, you can tell that they were really built for cars. And LA is a nice place to, to be if you're, you're driving around, but in terms of walkability, it doesn't really have the highest marks. We see a lot of cities like this though, particularly in the United States. So how do we expect cities that were built for cars in the 20th century to adapt to the needs of the 21st century? Do you think electric cars and Lyft and Uber will address the mobility and climate challenges that come with you know, having all these cars on the road? Or uh, what do you think it'll look like in 2030? I mean, there's so much we could unpack there. Of course, if you're having driverless cars, then taxis will just be driverless taxis by 2030, which will come and pick you up. And so that will have an impact again on employment. So how we transition between uh, the present people who work uh, in our transport systems to ones which will be doing different things is part of, I think, uh, the attempt by both the infrastructure bill and uh, other bills that the Biden administration is trying to get through, which will help us not only address uh, climate change, but will hopefully retrain the next generation of people to do the work that need, is needed in 2030. But, you know, it's not just that the cities will become cleaner, because, of course, if you're using an electric car, whether it's driverless or whether it's someone in it, you're producing less pollution and so they'll become healthier. I think we've also seen a situation where due to the pandemic people have realized in many professions they don't have to live in the city to do that profession. So I think over the next 10 years you'll see a certain amount of population move from the cities to more rural areas because most of the work they can do they can do remotely. So I think that will have a positive impact. And then the question is what do we do about the plains? And so there are a number of areas that can be investigated in the medium term. It's clearly going to be potentially hydrogen cell uh, planes that will take people. And there's already smaller planes being tried out in, in Europe. But I think, you know, that one of the interesting things is if we link together waste streams uh, that come from household waste to air fuel, it's estimated you can reduce the CO2 emissions by 70% and of course take that out of landfill. So we have a positive process in both those cases. So I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities. Can you explain that a little bit more, waste streams and how that connects to the the emissions of the of, of airplanes? Yeah, sure. So uh, the, there's a thing called sustainable fuels. And the, the one that most people know about is using agricultural waste to use that for their cars. I mean, you, you have uh, ethanol as a product that goes into cars. United built, I think, in Chicago, a plant to take uh, household waste and convert it into air fuel. And the present engines that the planes have can take up to 50% of that relatively easily. If you were to convert all of the hub airports in the world to a place where their household waste went instead of to a landfill, went to a plant that converted it into air fuel, you would reduce the CO2 emissions from uh, using uh, aeroplanes by up to 70%. And so we have a short term thing that we could do. 
and then more long-term views i think uh for short for short haul uh airplanes i think we'll move to uh using uh, some form of hydrogen or or perhaps some electric planes but i think for the long haul we, we need to perhaps continue to use something like a fuel produced from waste as a way forward i love that idea and just you mentioned a little bit earlier people don't necessarily need to live in the places that they work anymore uh, with the rise of remote work, particularly after COVID sort of accelerated that. Do you expect that we'll just see less business travel or that it'll continue at the pace that it was before the pandemic? I, I think it will see less. And I mean, I look at the work that I do. Some of it I need to be in person, but in the past I would have come to New York for a meeting at the United Nations when I could have done it through a Zoom meeting. And so I think that we're going to see um, a period of adjustment um, and where companies were reticent for people to work at home because they thought that was um, going to be less effective. I think they found in the period of the pandemic that actually people are pretty effective. It also enables them to spend more time with their family. Uh, it also reduces their their footprint because they're not using uh, transports that's probably carbon based. And it probably makes a healthier community as a whole because they're around more to be able to participate in it. So I think those things are really exciting. I know that you wrote a blog post talking about COP26, which is coming up in November. Uh, which, for those of you who don't know, that's the UN Climate Change Conference. It's where countries from all around the world come together and set commitments and figure out how we're gonna how we're gonna deal with climate change. And in that blog post, you argued that it's important that we do this in person, and that there's certain types of diplomacy that we do in person. In your work, you know, you're meeting with a lot of different people from missions and NGOs and all different types of government bodies from, from all around the world. Where do you think we need to have in-person meetings for global diplomacy? And then where do you think we might be able to cut down and, and have Zoom meetings? I think when you're going to move forward political position. So I'm at the moment in New York working on trying to persuade some governments to take up some text on agriculture for a resolution that will be coming up later in the year. And it's more difficult to do that just by Zoom unless I know them very well. So when you're going to make critical decisions like climate change negotiations, which are dealing with targets that they're setting or dealing with how they're going to uh, mitigate or adapt, uh, do adaptation in all countries, then you need to have those in person. If it's more of a kind of educational thing. So I also attend the World Water Week and most of those meetings, it wouldn't make that much difference if you were in person. In fact, you have more people gaining knowledge by being uh, virtual than you do by being there in person. So I think it will affect all of those things. And I think one of the interesting things on travel that you've got is that We've talked about in previous episodes, uh, blockchain as a useful uh, tool. We can see that also evolving in the context of travel so that, you know, when you make your booking for your flight and your hotel and everything can be linked together so that it becomes one particular travel plan which uh, integrates everything. Whole lots of things you can do for travel that's not just what we're used to now. So all of those conveniences sound really good to me. And of course, with these conveniences, what informs them is our personal data. So 
really the conveniences are only going to be as good as how much data we share about our, our preferences. Of course, sharing data, that is a huge topic right now. It's only going to become more of a significant debate as data informs these, these emerging technologies. You talk about how sharing personal data will allow for these more customizable travel experiences. Do you expect companies like Airbnb or hotels to get into the travel planning business? And then if they prepare these itineraries, how do you expect the data sharing to work there? So, so I think I th it's a very good question. And I think that, um, you know, it will be dependent on the individual on how much they want to share. And it always should be. But it could be that you've linked your Instagram, your Facebook, your LinkedIn into your travel information. And so your hotel can make you recommendations on the kind of theater things you want to go to or the films before you arrive. So it helps you to enjoy your experience. But of course, you can also decide not to share those things. And so I think the ability to, in that blockchain, decide which bits of the information you want to share with the airline, with the hotel is important. But, you know, more and more of us are making choices on traveling so that our footprint, our carbon footprint is less. And so that would be in the blockchain. So that the options that you're being asked or to consider would be taking into consideration your issues around food waste or around energy or around water use. The hotel that you're going to be suggested will be ones that's trying to offset its carbon or is trying to reduce its water. So it allows you to become a very constructive, engaged citizen. And it also pushes the industry to a more green place. I think you're right about that, because I think even at this phase, we are beginning to have sustainability conversations around blockchain. I, I know earlier this year, we talked about how much Bitcoin uses and we have these other blockchain solutions that are you know, transitioning from proof of work, which that's what Bitcoin uses, which is very energy intensive to things like proof of stake, which Ethereum, which is another major cryptocurrency and also uh, a universe for you know, distributed contracts and uh, smart contracts, uh, distributed finance. That's transitioning to proof of stake, which is much less energy intensive. So I, I think that we'll see this be a part of the, the conversation even moving forward with blockchain because it's already such a major point right now. And I, I wanna shift gears real quick to space tourism. The billionaire space race is on. Just weeks before Amazon founder Jeff Bezos's history-making launch into space, Sir Richard Branson announcing overnight, he'll blast off first. We've been seeing the billionaire space race kind of take off this year, you know, with Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin. So space tourism is becoming a reality. Do we expect that this billionaire space race is foreshadowing an age of space tourism that's going to be accessible to everyone? And what do you expect the cost of recreational flights to take people into orbit would be by 2030? Do you think it'll be affordable to your average person? I, I, I'm not as hopeful that it's going to be uh full of a kind of Disney world up there yet. But it is by 2050, that may be the case. And, you know, there is a difference between uh, the Musk and the and the Richard Branson rockets and the Bezo rockets, because the Bezo rockets use liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, which didn't produce carbon dioxide. So it was much more uh, environmentally friendly, while SpaceX's for every trip, it's equivalent of 341 people crossing the Atlantic with the amount of CO2 that's going out. So there needs to be some legislation that deals with what types of rockets we're talking about. We want ones that are carbon neutral. 
The other thing is that, you know, we're still at the early stage of finding out how people can live in space. We're relatively young space explorers, though Star Trek has clearly given us a final frontier to, to go towards. This is Captain Picard of the Enterprise. I'm taking command of the fleet. But I think we saw some of the problems with the uh, Matt Damon film, The Martian. Mark Watney, astronaut. I'm entering this log for the record where they left him behind and he had to kind of live there reusing his own, shall we say, um, resources to to live uh, before they could come back. It's going to be very, very difficult. And some people question whether we should be focusing on that or whether we should be just dealing with things around the planet as we have now. And I think you have to say that space travel has generated some really useful inventions over the time. So I think... You know, we're not going to stop people from doing it, particularly as we've privatized um, space travel now, so it can happen. So I think we need to make it as environmentally friendly as we possibly can. Yeah, and I think centering, you know, the carbon intensity is, is really important as this becomes more of an industry. And assuming we can do it, though, and assuming that we can be carbon neutral, I know I'd love to go into orbit, you know, see the planet from that perspective. Would you do it? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up on Star Trek and Star Wars and, um, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things which we, we haven't mentioned, but um, Luke Skywalker in his uh, in the first Star Wars movie, his aunt and uncle. Luke's just not a farmer owner. He has too much of his father in him. Were basically uh, moisture harm farmers or rainwater harvest farmers because they were trying to keep water from the atmosphere to be able to live on that particular planet. So we had some really interesting examples. If you look at Star Trek and most of their technology from those uh, issues in the uh, those episodes in the 60s, uh, many of those have come to pass. Um, and so it's an interesting way to have seen the future. We like the Jetsons. Um, and now we're looking at um, Uber having uh, flying cars, probably by the mid part of this century. In New Hampshire, they passed the bill, which they called the Jetson Bill, so that it's about you know how you can look after flying cars within a particular height above um, above the ground. So I think there's some interesting things that are going to happen. Yeah, it seems like a lot of what has come to pass has been explored and has been foreshadowed also in our science fiction over the past few years. So I think that's all the time we have for today. But Felix, thank you so much for joining us. Again, this series is on your book, Tomorrow's People and New Technology. Next week, we're going to be talking about health and education. It's going to be in your ears then. In the meantime, I'm going to pack my bags. I'm feeling really excited for travel after this conversation. And it's great to hear how it might look in 2030 and how it might be less carbon intensive than it is right now. So Felix, thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to you joining us again in a couple episodes to talk about entertainment. So hope you all can join us for that as well. Felix, thank you. Thank you very much.